Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. This episode is sponsored by Roofstock on Chain. Money is changing. So where do we go from here? Through high-profile interviews and thought-provoking analysis, join Michael Casey and Sheila Warren for the Money Reimagined podcast as they explore the connection between finance, human culture, and our increasingly digital lives. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. And now, here's Michael Casey. Hello and welcome to Money Reimagined. I'm Michael Casey. The crypto domino effect this past month has been nauseating for many who've dedicated their lives to this industry. It's also forcing them to ask deep questions about what went wrong. How could companies valued in the tens of billions of dollars a few months ago suddenly be worthless? Was everything that came before the FTX moment a mirage, nothing but a shell game, Ponzi scheme? I, for one, continue to believe that the core technology underpinning Bitcoin, Ethereum, and other protocols has enormous potential to address many of humanity's biggest challenges, or at least give us a fresh framework for looking at them. I remain convinced that when the decentralized governance promised by blockchains is targeted at areas where centralized entities have too much power over our lives and businesses, it can set a path toward a fairer, more open, and innovative economy. But before we even begin to convince the outside world that there really is value here, we're all going to have to go through some real introspection. That process has begun, and already it's becoming apparent that mostly what let us down was not a failure of the technology per se, but a failure of human beings. We've all heard the refrain from people within the industry, FTX, Celsius, Three Arrows, Atal, were all CFI problems, not DeFi. It's ostensibly correct. We were let down by the institutions that Tatoshi Nakamoto wanted to remove from the world of money, trusted intermediaries. But recognizing that doesn't solve the fact that crypto enthusiasts everywhere, supposedly following Satoshi's vision, built up a massive interlocking network of CeFi entities to fuel the speculative token trading mania that has put crypto markets through a wild roller coaster ride and destroyed untold wealth. People trustfully handed over the keys to the kingdom, quite literally, to human beings that it later turned out they shouldn't have trusted even as they professed to never trust bankers, policymakers, and other institutional mainstays of the pre-crypto universe. Why? Well, these errors are age-old. There are unmistakable parallels between the crypto bubble 
and countless prior financial crises. In the aftermath of those past crises, new measures were often forged to limit the harm that the bankers, custodians, exchanges, brokers, and other intermediaries could have on the people who trusted in their services. So for today's episode, we're inviting two seasoned observers of the financial economy. As far as economists go, I can say, well, that they're rock stars. Both are prolific authors and commentators, and both happen to know crypto pretty well, warts and all. Simon Johnson is the Ronald A. Kurtz Professor of Entrepreneurship at the MIT Sloan School of Management. From 2007 to 2008, at a seminal moment in financial history, he was the chief economist at the IMF. Simon is also an advisor to MIT's Digital Currency Initiative, where I worked with him, had the pleasure of doing so, between 2015 and 2019. Simon is the author of five books, including his latest, co-written with Darren Asimoglu, Power and Progress, Our 1,000-Year Struggle Over Technology and Prosperity, which will be published in May. And he's the co-author of the Baseline Scenario blog. Tyler Cohen, a professor of economics at George Mason University, is similarly prolific. He has 16 books to his name. His most recent, co-authored with Daniel Gross, published in May this year, is Talent, How to Identify Energizers, Creatives, and Winners Around the World, along with his GMU colleague, Alex Tabarak. Tyler also produces the highly influential Marginal Revolutional blog, is an opinion columnist for Bloomberg, and he hosts a podcast, Conversations with Tyler. He also continues to maintain a much-loved guide to ethnic dining in Washington, D.C., I'm really looking forward to our conversation with them. But before we bring Simon and Tyler in, let's quickly say hello to my co-host, Sheila Warren. Hello, Sheila. How are you doing? Hey, Michael. Well, it's a day that ends in Y, so we'll see what, we'll see what it winds up bringing. Um, yeah. Waiting with bated breath for these FTX hearings that are going to happen oh, this my week goodness. to kind of see, yeah, do, does Sam Bankman-Fried continue under oath to say, uh, spill, spill uh, yeah. his innermost thoughts the way he's been doing uh, on his media tour? Unprecedented. No, there, there was there was a situation. yeah. There was a time when you'd say, "Well, I bet he will do this or say this or not say this or that," because yeah. his lawyer would say this. Right? <laughs> correct. Correct. But but I think those same lawyers, when we one would assume would tell would have been telling him not to do some of the things he's been doing in the last few weeks as well. So well, one would hope. One would hope yeah, that they. But they I mean, look, as as somebody who wants to chronicle this and make it at least interesting, I'm certainly hoping that if his lawyers are telling him to keep his mouth shut, that he that he doesn't listen to them because that's just going to make it all the more interesting. But I couldn't sure. agree more. You know, what I think is so interesting, though, is each generation, you know, makes mistakes, right? And they make new mistakes. <laughs> they make some of the old mistakes, which we'll chat about today, and they make some new mistakes. And I, I certainly would say, when you think back to whether it's, you know, Ken Lay, even Elizabeth Holmes, I don't know, get some of these folks that have been accused of similar kinds of malfeasance or, or activity, they were not doing press tours. They were not going on yeah. Good Morning America, at least not in my memory. So, yeah, we also didn't new, have uh, the richest man in the world just tweeting out his whims at any given moment across Twitter and, and, and for a company that he paid $44 billion for. So, that's right. It's, yeah, just, it's yeah. just a crap. I don't think any of us that are a, of a, a certain age, and that's not even a very old age, know what to really make of that. It continues to just be mind blowing to me yeah. that, you know, you do the deed and then you can't even shut up about it. <laughs> Well, it's just... a good thing that we've got a couple of whippersnappers from Gen, from Gen Z with us today to, uh, to talk to what the young <laughs> folk really are thinking here. I uh, hope we can be a bit curmudgeonly at moments in this episode. I, I, there is, this is a moment, I think, when to call upon <laughs> please, the, the wisdom, wisdom of age, I think, is, is, is actually sort of, that's the whole point here. Uh, and with all due respect to that, these, 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 young, these young gentlemen who we're talking to here. So listen, guys, thanks for joining us. Simon, I, look, I thought I'd just start with you. Invited both you and Tyler on because I, I figured, you know, we'll talk a little bit about the financial crisis of 2008 and like 
you know, I've been thinking about the whole leverage story and the unwind of that and how there are interesting parallels and maybe, you know, folks who, and we'll certainly go into that. But then, you know, when you pointed to pointed out to me that you have this book coming out in May and you're talking about a thousand years of lessons, not just not just a decade ago. Uh, so maybe just quickly, you can sort of say like, like maybe a quick takeaway from that book and how would you apply some of those lessons to this particular moment that we're living through in this, this, this meltdown in the crypto universe? Well, Michael, that's, that's a good question. Still trying to absorb all the crypto news myself. I, I think, though, it goes to something uh, that, that you and Sheila were just talking about a moment ago, which is who, who do you trust to lead a sector? Who do you believe is shaping technology in the right direction? And to what extent do you put your faith in one or two uh, amazingly charismatic individuals and sort of believe them and, and follow them somewhat blindly? And, and as, as you said, Michael, we've been through this many times before, including 2008, where it wasn't, these were not crypto people wearing t-shirts, they were bankers wearing suits. But there was a lot of shaping of technology and application of technology in ways that turned out to be pretty mad in, in, in retrospect. I think there's a definite parallel there. Yeah. I mean, throughout history, we've been let down by, by human beings. And I suppose that's one of the reasons why we've reverted over years to social institutions to try to, to protect ourselves against that, namely regulation. So maybe, Tyler, I mean, because you've chronicled crises, you've looked at the way this intersects with our politics. What do you see being the sort of social regulatory takeaway from what's happening in crypto? Again, drawing upon some of those, those past lessons. Increasingly, I am deciding that the exchange-based model of crypto will not take off, far more limited than we thought. Uh, it works when crypto prices just keep on rising at high rates. But otherwise, say you have an exchange that truly does have 100% reserves. Uh, in banking and finance, that's never been a very profitable model. So if you take a true 100% reserves-based exchange and then it apply forthcoming regulations to it, such as reserve requirements, or whatever the Fed, the FDIC have in mind, I don't think you have a very viable sector. Now, I think crypto will continue in some ways that may be better off without major exchanges. The price of Bitcoin has fallen less than one might have thought. Uh, so I'm not so much more negative on crypto, but again, the intermediaries seem to be the problem. That's a really interesting perspective. A lot of us step back sometimes and just say, you know, and as it was implied there in my opening monologue, you know, the speculation and the sort of the rampant kind of crazed number go up uh, mania around this thing is is in many respects detracted from what may be the benefits of the technology. And then I, and when I often raise that, the flip side that also is operating in my own head is often, but you know what, you still need the speculation because speculation throughout history is this means by which we allocate capital, it drives interest, it gets incentives aligned, et cetera, et cetera, and it sort of builds the thing. So finding whatever that happy medium between healthy speculation and you know something that doesn't distract or detract from the underlying technological change that's happening is really what we're aiming for. Maybe, throwing this out there, the failure of the exchange thing is where this gets to, where the assets are still valuable, but they don't become the thing. They don't become the all-consuming activity that I think is one of the biggest problems here. Look, you know, I think we have to talk a little bit about the UX dilemma that we've had in crypto from the early days. This stuff was just so hard to use. And part of what's been interesting is the pull some exchanges had, including, you know, FTX, is they made it a little easier to democratize the access to these assets. And I do think there's a distinction between the asset itself 
again, not to say that all assets are created equal, because I think there are some assets I think you and I and, and, and I think our guests might agree were, you know, we're, we're pumped and dumped and whatnot. Regardless, some of the kind of, let's say, core assets here, there's a distinction between those and the mechanism for engagement with those assets, in this case, the exchanges or, you know, other kinds of mechanisms. And one thing I find I've been thinking quite a bit about is just when you democratize kind of access, you do get some of the good and, and some of the bad. The ability for folks to, it's unprecedented, the kind of ability that we had using, to your point in our, in our chat, Twitter and things like this, social media, the rapidity and the ability for information to kind of go viral right around what these assets are or aren't, and the, the kind of rapid ability for folks to then make a decision, a snap decision, right, to kind of engage is really unprecedented. And so when you go back to other assets that have had a kind of a mania around them, there was still a limitation in who was literally mechanically able to engage with that asset. Whereas here, a lot of those barriers were removed. And so I think it's interesting to think about speculation. I think it's also interesting to think about who might have been able to speculate and and how and to what degree. But to Tyler's point, maybe if they're not these exchange models aren't going to work, then there isn't going to be a means for them to do so. Is that is that the way to go to think this through, Tyler? I don't believe in democratizing access to all assets. Now, I think people should be legally free to buy crypto, uh, but I'm hoping most of them won't. Now, if you speak to the people in Venezuela and Argentina, people trying to get capital out of China, those are the people who plausibly should be buying crypto. Many of them are. Crypto in those contexts is extremely useful. I'm happy to see that. And the speculative boom may have driven some of the infrastructure to make that possible. But speculative booms also distort a lot of the surrounding infrastructure. And that's what we've seen in such a huge percentage of really the crypto sector is a bunch of distorted institutions driven by the prospect of ever higher capital gains. And now a lot of that's going poof. I hope it ends up being for the better for crypto as a whole. Web3 is magic. In a world where you can buy apes and punks instantly, is real estate the next step? Roofstock OnChain has pioneered the ability to buy homes instantaneously using Web3 technology while opening up new financing options with DeFi. Follow the White Rabbit. Find us at onchain.roofstock.com. That's onchain.roofstock.com. Simon, you got any, any thoughts on how do we get, I suppose, healthy speculation and maybe what lessons throughout history we've learned from that? speculation often precedes these transformations in society and technology, whether it's the tulip bubble or dot-com bubble, et cetera. So there's something that's beneficial in it. How do you find the happy medium? Uh, it's a great question, Michael. We're grappling with this after you know 200 years of modern economy and 12,000 years of, of civilization, more or less. I don't think we have the answer. I, I would rather this space not be regulated personally uh, and let them just go on with it and figure out, I mean, as long as you can isolate it from the main core financial system, the only bad news I've heard in the last three months is that Goldman Sachs is going to crypto, Michael. That really alarmed <laughs> me, okay, because they're masters of the bailout and we know where that leads. Yeah. But apart from that, I think things go up, things go down, you build something, it, it self-destructs, to Tyler's point. It's sort of sad, but you know that, that, that is how we innovate and how we build a lot of other sensible bits and pieces of capitalism around the world. I think, unfortunately, to Sheila's point, when you get these massive manias that suck in people who really don't understand what's going on, uh, then and you sort of violate the Titus proposed constraint, which is let's let everyone buy it, but hope most of them don't. When that when you violate that because people get so carried away or because they're stuck home during the pandemic and there's nothing else to do, then I think we have a problem and you have a consumer protection issue that you have to worry about. 
because you may be affecting you know the wealth of people who don't have much wealth. I, I'm very torn here, Michael. I, I want to say no regulation, go to the Bahamas, do what you want, go to Vegas, do what you want. I don't think not many states have representatives on, on, on the tarmac in Las Vegas trying to prevent their citizens, uh, the US <laughs> states, trying to prevent their US citizens from losing their money, which is what most of them are going to do. So the problem is, can we isolate that from the core financial system? I think we can. I think we should make sure it stays isolated so it doesn't bring down other stuff because that's a real mess. And then what do you do about consumer protection? Like, that is probably the really hard one. Um, right. Prosecution of FTX and SBF, I think, will shed light on a core issue. And that is how much jurisdiction does the United States government actually feel it has over a supposedly insulated exchange in the Bahamas? I am afraid of what will happen, that our government has taken upon itself to prosecute corruption in international soccer leagues and do all kinds of things abroad that it really has no business sticking its nose into. I would rather this sets a precedent for just saying it was the Bahamas. Yes, there are some technical charges. You could get him on wire fraud. He sent emails to New York and so on. But actually, that it is not too much of a United States issue. I hope, but I am not expecting that. I hope you can do a different show on the vast criminal enterprise, which is professional soccer, because that's, that, that is awful. But on this one, if we stick to the topic here, I agree with you, Tyler, that there's some extra judicial, extraterritorial issues here. But at the same time, I know I would point out to everyone that when FTX went bankrupt, what actually happened legally was 140 entities registered in Delaware simultaneously filed for bankruptcy. So if you're letting them be US registered companies, right, that's a decision. And, and that comes with some Delaware law. But it also comes with some federal implications, I think. Then there's a question about who can be prosecuted and for what, even if they say that their business is primarily outside the United States, which it wasn't, sadly. It's a really interesting question, you know, kind of the international jurisdictional boundaries and how porous those are going to prove to be and how much cooperation you might see in the role of the Bahamas and all of this, I think it is still just being, you know, I don't think we have yet to kind of peel the onion on, on all of that. Not to say that there's complicity, but just kind of say that, that the role of kind of how they're going to view this and the responsibility that they did have as the regulator of, you know, of the, of the jurisdiction. Um, not to mention, can we just briefly side note the ridiculous amount of real estate that that, <laughs> that this group and their affiliates purchased in the Bahamas that now it's all going to be seized, run presumes, and kind of used to pay back, uh, hopefully, the creditors? What a scene, you know? It, it's interesting to think about how... So the, the first use case, really, of crypto was, of course, um, hyperinflation and then censorship resistance and, of course, this cross-border efficiency. And so the reason you had so many central banks looking at a blockchain for the core technology was, of course, trying to make more efficient real-time settlement, make it really real-time, all these kinds of things, right? Try to kind of settle things a lot faster and move things uh, across borders more quickly. And, of course, remittances has emerged as this big use case gets talked about all the time that has been helpful to, you know, people... In engaging in small dollar value transactions or small whatever unit currency transactions. And that, of course, suggests that part of the problem and challenge in our global economy is, of course, engagement by, from one system to another. And that includes, of course, government policy and the ability to arbitrage regulation, which, of course, is if one is to believe this, if one can believe anything at this point in time, the origin story of, you know, Sam and, and Alameda was this, or FTX, Alameda, I think, right, was to kind of literally take funds and like take the paper and kind of fly it across and try to get kind of take advantage of regulatory arbitrage. At the same time, we aren't seeing consistent approaches to policymaking from different parts of the world, like by any means, right? And I think the reality is that a small country like the Bahamas has a tremendously outsized ability to influence this ecosystem because they are friendly to 
this activity and, and to this asset class. What I'm finding fascinating to observe if I take kind of a zoom out view is the playing field and how it's being leveled a bit by these countries that maybe served a particular role in the global digital economy, global economy to begin with, and are, are playing a different role in the global digital economy. And one that I think we're all still starting to unpack and understand. And the dismissal of some of these jurisdictions is, I think, proving to be quite a mistake, <laughs> I think we can say, because outsourcing the oversight and responsibility to a jurisdiction you don't actually have a strong, really strong relationship with means that your citizens and people in your jurisdiction are, are could potentially be hurt by this. And the extent to which consumer protection laws are going to wind up being relevant to actors who you know really think of themselves as global citizens is a whole new question I think we're wrestling with. I'm just curious to get your, you know, your thoughts on this. No systemic risk to the United States. We should have a minimal role in what happens, not a zero role, but we should not arrogate upon ourselves the entire enforcement. Uh, I think the big underreported story here is just what this will do to the Bahamas and the Caribbean. Mm, I would yeah. think it will significantly diminish their willingness to take risks with more legitimate projects, with multinational enterprises, with new development strategies. Uh, that's really yeah. quite significant. Yeah. And it's it's not a tangible thing you can report on, uh, but it's a big loss in terms of their disappointment, disillusionment, uh, arguably resentment. And the opportunity. But, and the opportunity. We, I mean, we, we talk a lot in this show, Tyler, about the problem of de-risking that was just a, a fundamental outcome of the increased regulatory frameworks created in the United States around finance. And to, in some respect, to your point as well, the US being you know, the center of everything and, and correspondent banks in the US making decisions based upon really just weighing cost versus risk and saying, we're not going to do business in the Bahamas anymore, or we're not going to do business in, in Barbados, or, you know, countless of these little island economies suddenly found themselves cut out from investment flows. And crypto suddenly emerged as a way, not, not necessarily, I don't think they were looking to bring in massive amounts of speculative dollars, what they were thinking is they could literally build a framework for uh, a, a different, more independent financial system. I mean, if you look at you know what Bermuda is doing and others, it's a it's a, it's a it's an interesting way to approach this. So I, I personally would find that you know a great disappointment. I, d I just wonder whether or not that yes, if this diminishes their capacity to take risk and do these things, how do we still resolve the the original sin, the 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 core problem that I think is an outcome of everything we've seen over the last 20 years since really September 11th that has made all of this risk capital so unwilling to sort of like fund these places. I don't know, Simon, a lot of the work you've done is work with developing countries and innovative projects and so forth. And how, how important is their access to global funding? And, and is it something that can be resolved in a different way from, from what Bermuda and the Bahamas were trying to do with crypto? Well, I think we're going to have to try all the ways there are, Michael, uh, because you're quite right that de-risking has been with us for a while. It's not actually that new a phenomenon. It is important for these countries. And I think um, it, it is unfortunate and difficult for them, but they have to um, satisfy. They either have to connect to the regulated system and satisfy the regulators, which is plan A, or plan B, which is what you said, is you know go some sort of crypto new route. And, and and as you and Sheila and Tyler have all flagged quite effectively in the last few minutes, that one is a little bit uh, in in trouble and, and maybe more scary, uh, actually, for, for these island nations than it was six to 12 months ago. So it's it's a real problem, uh, Michael, and I would not want to belittle it. I don't think there are any easy answers for, for, for these sorts of financial centers at the moment. 
So, so do we default to just, you know, and it sounds like this is definitely what you're not wanting to see, Tyler, but does this mean we just default to once again, you know, a US-centric approach to these things? It could be the future of crypto is in some parts of Asia or possibly in the European Union, if the European Union does not come down hard on crypto, as some reports are indicating. The United States has a unique lack of tolerance for mixing commerce and banking. So crypto being regulated in the United States, it tends to get pushed in with the banking system too readily, too quickly, and in too intrusive a manner. So then you have to look around, well, you know, what countries could crypto be in that are stable enough, trustworthy enough? You see Singapore being much more skeptical about crypto. The European Union, which you would think on paper would be hospitable to crypto, is making very negative noises. Uh, you don't want to be left with just small island nations. Can I say something really controversial, Michael? Please do. And we always do like that. Out of the show, if it upsets any of your listeners, I think Gary Gensler is a very sensible guy. I'm sorry, I've got it. I have to get it out there. I, I know a lot of people are not going to like me for that. Look, Sheila looks quite stunned. Uh, but I, I think <laughs> you, you know, Tyler's right. One 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 route that is not going to be appealing to the crypto guys is going with the bank. Okay, and I'm not I'm not recommending that, and I don't think it'll work. But another route is is go in as exchanges and be treated like exchanges for other things. Which and now Tyler raises a good point earlier on, which was what's the business model? How much money can you make, and so on. I think I'm a bit more optimistic about that if you look at how some some of the most efficient people run exchanges uh, in, in, in regulated settings. And I think that's the Gensler proposal or proposition, which the crypto people I understand are not buying. But I think well, that is a viable option. Otherwise, you're going to get chased into these little bits and pieces of the world where your effect is going to be marginal at, at best. I need to step in. Sheila's going to have to come out to me because both of us have our own take on this. Now, the first thing is to, is to make the disclosure that uh, Gary Gensler was at MIT with Simon, with you. Uh, in fact, you invited me there and he worked with me there. And, and I thoroughly enjoyed working with Gary, extremely smart guy with lots of very interesting, valuable perspectives to bring all these things. I think my issue with the way that the Gensler era of the SEC has has, has dealt with the SEC, uh, with, with crypto, is, is really about guidance and clarity. And, and I think the Gensler mantra that he was often starting at MIT, that like crypto needs to come within a regulatory framework for it to actually succeed is a true one. I, I thoroughly accept that. And I think that what he's been trying to do for the most part is work within that. But the lack of clarity and the sense that it is uh, regulation by enforcement, as opposed to embracing the idea of like really start maybe revisiting in some way, at least, you know, the original legislation and championing some different way of looking at this, uh, would have been would have been useful because it, there is a real sense that the, that the guidance was was not clear. Gary obviously says says that no, he's been as clear as as, as day, but uh, there is a real issue with that. I think I don't know, Sheila. Yeah, there's certainly people that enjoy you know vilify having a villain or having a nemesis or whatnot, and 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 certainly it does seem that that Gary Gensler leans into into playing that role and almost seems to enjoy it a bit, right? Based on some of the comments he makes that are probably more. Uh, controversial than they really would need to be to get his points across. I think it's a really a, a process foul. People are calling a process foul and saying, basically, you, you clearly have some idea in mind of what the regulatory model is, rather than articulating that very clearly in this new space, you are uh, choosing instead and having your agency go after select actors for reasons that are a little unclear, and specifically going after, and this is where people just don't really understand how agency process works. But regardless, the optics of this are quite poor, because you're going after some of the 
uh, more reliable actors and allowing some of the actors that a lot of people in the industry have concerns about to kind of go unscathed, at least seemingly right now. Again, I can't speak to intention, you know, all that. But I do think that there is a process issue here that is quite legitimate, very legitimate. And I think that is true, even if you believe that Gary Gensel's approach to regulating this space is a good one, which you know is, is also open to interpretation for sure. My disclosure is that my wife works at the SEC, but putting aside whatever is one's opinion of Gensler, I think the problem is there's a fear that any systematic approach will crush crypto Yeah. so that there has not been one. It's not some accident or mere failure of will that a lot of Americans hold crypto. Those individuals tend to vote. You don't want to crush their crypto prices. And so people keep on stalling. That is, mm. in my opinion, a bad place to be. But yeah. I've never seen anyone with a very clear map forward. And if you look at SPF's proposals, he was going to sell DeFi down the river in right. order for his operation to get privilege. That's no good. But that was even on the table because th there's not a much better idea that I've seen. As, you know, it's interesting. And this is kind of when I was at the World Economic Forum, you know, one of the things we said all the time is that premature regulation is also problematic because this is a new space that really is at the cutting edge in terms of privacy technologies, cryptography, like all these kinds of different elements of the tech that are being crafted in real time, some of which call upon, you know, very longstanding cryptographic techniques and other things, some of which really are emerging in viable models, technical models, business models, and otherwise. And I do think you see a period of experimentation with any look at the search engine history, right? I mean, like, no, does anyone remember Alta Vista or Northern Lights? I mean, I do. You know, ask Jeeves. I asked Jeeves a lot of questions. Let me tell you, right? I don't think anyone is sad apart from the folks that were invested in those places or founded them whose names have been, at least in my, my mind, lost to history. Sad about that because other things that emerged were more powerful models that actually took advantage of later technology and, and, and kind of other things. And similarly, I don't think it's reasonable to expect that you'd have a different progression in this ecosystem that is, again, new. But at some point, it's been around long enough and there's been enough real harm done, certainly, you know, most of it by individual actors who were engaging in, you know, criminal, I, I mean, again, I can't make a legal claim, but criminal seeming at least behavior. And I think all of us kind of feel convinced that there's criminal charges that could be brought here, whether folks who do that or not is a different question. So at some point, you do have to lay out, I think, rules of the road to give people a sense of, you know, what are the rules of operation in this space? And how do I distinguish different players? But yeah, Simon. So I've, I've actually been wanting to, I haven't seen Michael in a while, and I been wanting to ask him this question, which is his views on on one of the uh, deepest uh, commentaries on the crypto age, which of course is Larry David's Super Bowl ad. As you all recall, he, he expresses great skepticism about, among other things, the wheel, coffee, indoor plumbing, the light bulb, and the Apollo mission. And then, of course, seems to yeah. reverse endorse FTX. But I guess the, the joke or the fallacy there is to equate one company or one hubristic individual yeah. with a technology. But how should we think about that, Michael? What is the category of things that we're encountering here? Sheila actually laid out, I like Sheila's presentation now because she broke it down into some component pieces. We've got cryptography, great. We've got some smart contracts, also some new elements there, right? So break it down to those elements. I think it's more convincing than if you lump it together and say crypto. But I don't know, I, th yeah. I think this is, and this is very relevant to Sheila's question or point, which is don't regulate too early if you want innovation. I agree with that. And I, I like it when we have spaces where we feel no need to regulate at all until way down the road. But we've also encountered some experiences in digital land of mm. late where we've kind of regretted, right, some of the twists and turns perhaps that social media has taken. I'm going to just, you know, indulge you because I like you. I think one of the things we're touching on here is the problem of taxonomy 
Like we've never had clear, precise words for things. Crypto itself, like it started off with, you know, we talked about this thing was called Bitcoin. When I first started writing about Bitcoin and these new blockchain ideas were emerging. So the, when Ethereum came along, we were calling it Bitcoin 2.0. Well, that's not what it was. <laughs> and then it became the word blockchain, which was also like as if it was a technology it used to drive me nuts because it was actually a noun sort of to describe a ledger that was being used as sort of as a concept. And then, you know, that got dismissed because it really was being way too much appropriated by permissioned blockchains, the kind of consortia thing, which wasn't the true spirit of permissionlessness that Ethereum and others are based on. So then we came up with crypto and crypto just became a generic reference to this broad category of everything from Bitcoin through to Ether and all the other DAOs and everything else that was happening. And I think what's happened though, and I was thinking about this when I read David Solomon's, speaking of Goldman and their interest in this space. Simon, he wrote a piece for the, the Wall Street Journal the other day saying, you know, I don't like crypto, but I like blockchain, right? And that was a refrain we used to joke a little bit about. I don't like Bitcoin, I like, I like blockchain. But I think what he means by that is not that he doesn't like, say, Ethereum and NFTs and things that are actually now permissionless-based systems, but rather crypto as a sort of a catch-all for all this madness that we're talking about. And I think this is probably part of the problem here is like now crypto is going to be synonymous with FTX, whether we like it or not. And I feel like it is just one of the things that this community is going to have to grapple with is like, how do we describe ourselves? In some respects, the best thing that could happen is if the language that is being used to describe very precise things like NFTs and smart contracts and so forth disappear into the background. It's really interesting that Reddit digital collectibles are doing really well. And this is the same Reddit community that was dismissing NFTs as a scam. They're all buying NFTs now. They're just not calling them that. They're called digital collectibles. And yeah. the same way I like to think like T- you know, TCP IP, you know, no one talks about TCP IP. I mean, the number of times you put your hand up, you know, what is that? No one knows. The foundational protocol of the internet. We some people surely know. <laughs> What's that we, hope, we hope some know, right? Oh, no, you I, talk to a general public audience, they, they know, don't, right? So the point being like, these these words and these these concepts, I think, hopefully move into the background and we start talking about the applications yeah. and what they are. You know, I've always said when this ecosystem is made, it's because no one's talking about the tech anymore, right? You kind of just, the tech fades into the background to your point. I would push back though, Michael. I don't know that people will equate SAM or FTX with crypto. I, I think of this, the initial question was, is this a Bernie Madoff moment? I, I think we'll find out at some point was the intention from the very beginning to defraud people? Or was that something that came later as a cover? And so I see this as more of an Elizabeth Holmes, you know, if you will, situation, right? Like you started, you had a thing, you did build a thing, the thing wasn't working, you were trying to buy time, you started to panic, you made some extraordinarily, ridiculously immoral, I would say, decisions, then you doubled down on those decisions, and then you got caught. But no one is saying that diagnostic testing or biotech should be thrown out because Elizabeth Holmes lied. And I I really don't get the sense, certainly from Washington and, and from Brussels and London, that anyone's thinking about this that way. And, and the scope of the bad activity is so extreme the way it was at Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos that I do think people understand that this is, to some extent, the decision made by you know one or, a, or allegedly a small group of individuals of which the vast majority of people at the company and anywhere else and their partnerships and whatever had absolutely no idea any of this was going on, similar again to the Theranos situation. So so I, I don't actually believe that this is going to taint the entire proposition I, of crypto. I'm going to be very clear. I wasn't saying crypto, the, the, the actual tech, and this is going to be... The word itself, I think, is going to be a problem. I think the word is going to be seen <laughs> in this light, and that's going to be a challenge. 
what new words may emerge out of that. I'd like to get Tyler in there quickly because I just want to just get back to something you were saying earlier, Tyler, about the regulatory approach being one where everybody's worried about like over-regulating and there's all these different, you know, systemic risks that you would face if you were to like just overly prescribe and therefore the do-nothing response has been the default because of the, uh, you know, all these token holders might be you know, untowardly impacted by something. So what you're describing is, you know, this sort of classic problem of inaction that all humans seem to make, right? There's, there's always a negative outcome of one decision you're going to make. And what would be interesting to think about is like, and I'd like to hear Simon's response after you as well. What do we learn through history about these moments? Because every regulatory decision entails this problem. And the longer you delay the action, the worse you make it. What pushes it us over the edge to finally, as a society, take action and do something? And are we there at this moment for this industry? I think we're at a new and somewhat unprecedented moment. And it's not just about crypto. I'm struck by how many of the new technologies, and I include AI here in particular, they are non-legible in terms of how they work and what they do. I don't just mean that ordinary people don't understand the gears in the machine. They are fundamentally baffling and incomprehensible, even to most people with PhDs. And I think both with crypto and AI, literally no human being knows how to regulate them, no matter how smart that person may be. And I don't think we've quite ever faced the situation before. Well, we figured out how to regulate banks. You may or may not like it, but in some superficial sense, there's an apparatus that does in fact regulate banks. And with crypto AI and presumably more to come, possibly genetic engineering, embryo selection, I think we're just going to be totally baffled and stuck. I, I don't know what those paths will look like, but I don't think we'll figure it out by simply applying reasoning from the past. So I'm in a thousand years of history. Do Can we learn from that or are we in a completely different paradigm? Electricity. When Tyler made, when Tyler said what he just said, I, I thought I was trying to come up with where we had a really baffling, very important, very useful technology that's fundamentally baffling to most people. I, I mean, we could take offline whether or not you can define electricity or how to generate it as, uh, <laughs> as a separate thing. But in the 1890s and 1910s, I'm pretty sure it was totally baffling to almost everyone. Uh, and yet it was immensely useful. And I think that with, through some trial and error, state, federal, local regulation, a lot of private enterprise, of course, figuring out how to use it, it safely in industry. And, and, and of course, there were these cataclysmic, um, awful, awful disasters if you got it wrong at the personal level, at, 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 the, at the level of your house or your factory and so on. So I think we can do it. I think Tyler's right. I think this um, non-legible technology is very important. I worry a lot about AI because I think AI is actually extremely useful in spreading very fast. Uh, full, full disclosure, Sheila and others, Michael and I taught a course at MIT in 2016, where we had pretty much the same discussion as today, except without FTX. So I kind of wonder, I mean, technology <laughs> is potentially very useful, Michael, but I kind of wonder how fast it's moving. Whereas AI in 2016, when you sure. and I were working together, was almost nowhere on, on the radar in terms of impact, and now we see it sweeping. So I, I think it's it's a very important concern. I agree we shouldn't overregulate. I think the best thing to do is keep it away from core financial institutions, assets, Goldman Sachs, I'm talking to you, right? Mm -hmm. So that's the most important thing to me. And then have some spaces where we can actually allow people to invest, make mistakes. And and I, I just, I don't want relatively poor people to lose their life savings on this. I think that's tragic and not necessary, not a good part of the speculative, you know, for relatively well-off people to lose 5% of their wealth or make, uh, you know, double their money, fine, great. The, the consumer protection piece is really, really unpleasant. 
I like Gary Gensler, who is a friend of mine, is a former colleague of mine, absolutely. Come in out of the cold, be a security, go on to exchanges. We've learned the South Sea bubble did not destroy stock exchanges, right, Sheila? In fact, it created the basis for how we think about allowing there to be an infrastructure within which you can speculate. Prices going up, prices going down, great. What we don't want is prices going down, causing a great depression. Enter Ben Bernanke and and another episode of your podcast, no doubt. Those are the linkages that history tells us we should break. But allowing people to make fortunes, lose an appropriate amount of money, innovate within a reasonable, well-functioning market infrastructure, great. Let's go for it. I think we regulate many securities too much. So if we're going to regulate crypto as a security, we should deregulate securities at least partially. So for instance, restrictions on how much individuals can buy into what are in essence venture capital mm-hmm. offerings seem to me quite unjustified. I wouldn't want to apply those to crypto, but at least some parts of crypto I would consider regulating as a currency. That view is not popular anymore, but we do call them cryptocurrencies. I get that there are tokens that look an awful lot like securities issues, but I don't think we should regulate all of crypto as a security by any means. Tyler, I mean, you make a good point, but then it's back to the Bahamas, right? I mean, that's the loop we've been falling around here. And back to the Bahamas means being marginal and not having resources and and also overlapping with the de-risking issue that Michael flagged. So I'm not sure that's a terribly bright future for the industry either. Well, it's an interesting question, I think, also get to your point, Tyler, about what are we regulating against? Are we trying to protect people from taking risk? or from being defrauded. And those are different things. And I think we'd all agree that someone committing fraud and whatnot, we want to address asymmetric information to the extent that we can. And I I understand, of course, the points made about technology are really important. But people do deserve, I think, the right to decide and assess for themselves how much risk they, they want to take on as long as that risk is consistently understood. And you can calibrate what that risk is vis-a-vis other you know similar kinds of risks. Um, and that, I think, is what is missing here. But but in the FTX situation, we're talking not about taking on risk, we're talking about active fraud and just a- engagement in activity that was um, you know, against what they said they were doing, right? Like they have like a terms of use or whatnot, or terms of service that basically said they're not engaging in this kind of activity with customer funds. And then they were, in fact, doing that almost whole hog. So that's a different thing, I think, than regulating what people are allowed to do and how and how to, I don't know, I don't love the idea, I think the point you're you're making that we're telling people, unless you are pre-wealthy, you don't get to take on certain kinds of risk. That's why we have a stratified economic system. What's the right approach? We let people buy equities. We let people gamble to some extent. But I think it's much yep. harder than regulating electricity, most of which you can do without understanding electricity. Electricity took about 40 years to spread. Crypto took less than 10 years. AI, chat GPT, within a week, it has a million users. Yeah. These things can multiply very, very quickly, cross borders in a way electricity cannot. Uh, I don't have the answers. Uh, I don't think anyone else does either. So I, I am worried. Hmm. Final word, Simon, is like with the wrap in a moment here. Again, I, I love the fact that you've got your thousand year perspective here. Like, you know, can we take some comfort from the fact that we've, we've always gotten through these tumultuous moments and there's something on the other side? <laughs> Sometimes what's on this side is a bit rough, Michael. So <laughs> get that. But I, I think Tyler's right to be worried. And, and I think the problem here is that when, we, when we've got a lot of people who are innovating for the sake of making some money, for the sake of you know, taking advantage of people very quickly, and, and, we're, and they've sort of been facilitated in, in that through various mechanisms. I think that's a problem. I think going back to what you said, Michael, at the beginning of the show, your little inspirational intro where you said there are these important problems to be solved, and that's what we're working on here. I think that's right. And I, and I think if that's where the innovation is, is, is directed, then you're much more likely to 
actually end up with something that you like. Otherwise, we may be having the same conversation every five years with Sheila's mm-hmm. point about, oh, here we go again in terms of the fraud or the misrepresentation and, and so on. It's just too tempting. Taylor's right. The speed of, uh, at which you, these things can be adopted, the money, the speed at which you can make money is, is extraordinary. And the temptation, right, Sheila, the temptation to take advantage of people is unfortunately, in these recents, apparently overwhelming. So we've got to figure out how to do better on that without, to Tyler's point, killing off the innovation, which is not nobody's goal here. All righty. Listen, fabulous stuff. I can certainly take heart from the idea that we all see the opportunity to enable the good uh, while protecting people from the bad. How it is that we thread the needle of discovering what that right balance is. And, and we're going to be, you know, next week or this week, rather, with these hearings in Washington. And then obviously, whatever regulatory response is going to come out of that, you know, whether we like it or not, it's going to fall as it often does to you know the the, the good people we've elected into office in uh, in Washington to come up with something that is for the rest of the world here, which you know I, I think I tend to agree with Tyler here. I worry a little bit about where this goes in terms of you know U.S. overreach, but I I, I just see how it's all going to play out. Let's just hope at least that this compromise, this happy medium is discovered where people get protected, but we edit, yet we still innovate. And most importantly, we get back to what Simon was just saying about the roots of what this is all. Where is the good in this? How can we find that? How can we elevate that as a, as a possibility? So thank you to you both for, for joining us today. Really uh, rich discussion. Two economists who have had an enormous influence on my life, I am not ashamed to admit. Thank you both for all that you do. Thanks for joining us. Sheila, thanks as always for being here and all of your comments and questions. And thank you to all of you listeners. Come back again, I think probably for, no, there'll be, I should know what our schedule is for the rest of the year. I'm always a little bit confused about this, but nonetheless, we are going to hear from you next week. Thanks very much for coming by. See you later. You've been listening to Money Reimagined. Today's show has been produced and edited by Michelle Mousseau. Announcements by Adam Levine, and her executive producer is Jared Schwartz. Our theme song is by Shepard. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Please reach out to us at podcast at coindesk.com, subject line, Money Reimagined, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. And from all of us at Coindesk and the Money Reimagined team, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.